Good morning, Grace Chapel. If you would turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's on page 952 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 to 17. I have that song stuck in my head. It's one of those good songs to stick in your head that Jesus has paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but what church? He has washed it what? White as snow. And there is our hope. There is our hope. He has washed all of our sins, all of our burdens, all of our concerns, worries, He has washed them with his precious blood. Let's pray before we hear from God's word. Our Father, how we do not deserve your mercy. How we do not deserve your grace, but yet you lavished it, poured it out upon us. Your grace upon a wayward people. And yet it is your grace and your mercy by the power of your Spirit that calls us back to you. And Father, we come. We come broken. We come weary. We come needy. But we come to you, the author and giver of life the one who gives us the gift of our great salvation. So, Father, help us to not neglect our great salvation. Help us this morning to be reminded of the beauty and the power and weight and glory of what you have done for us through the work of Christ. His blood poured out, his body broken, and then not ending on the cross, but ending in the resurrection which points us to a future hope that we now long for. Help us to long for you, Jesus, to see you face to face. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter, 10, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. How many of you like conflict? I know there's probably one of you. There always is. I, I'm curious to see, not that any of us are ever are going to know particularly what is on here, but I, I, I'm willing to bet that there are a few unresolved conflicts on this board this morning. See, most people don't like conflict. You know, some unfortunately seem to thrive on it, we all know probably one person. But for most of us, generally speaking, conflict is messy. It is painful. It is comfortable. We all know when conflict arises, how do we feel inside? You get that sickness in your stomach. That, that feels like someone ripped into your heart and grabbed it out and is messing with it. That brokenness. You can't sleep at night because there's unresolved conflict in your life. 
Uh, the best way to describe it is maybe as we are in this constant state of turmoil. It's as our insides are being torn out and we're stressed and broken and worried. We long for resolution. And conflict makes us anxious, all the more anxious. We want it just to end. Interestingly, conflict is the opposite of peace. Conflict is the opposite of rest. Now, we've been talking a lot about rest lately, haven't we? Jesus promises us rest. Jesus offers us rest. Jesus is our rest. And conflict interrupts all that. Conflict throws all of our love and joy and peace and hope into a blender. It mixes it up and is broken into tiny little pieces. So what are we left with? Hatred, fear, worry, and despair. All of the opposites of what Christ wants for us in our rest. This is what unresolved conflict does to God's people. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. See, unresolved conflict whittles away at our souls and it ultimately destroys the body of Christ. But there's hope. With every moment of conflict, there's an opportunity. Every time there is conflict in our lives, there is an opportunity for us to choose to glorify God. Every conflict creates opportunity. Will we allow the conflict to fester and destroy, or will we allow the conflict to make us and transform us and conform us into humble peacemakers? Will we pursue peacemaking? Or will we add fuel to the fire in our conflicts? Or will we, like some of us do, just ignore it and hope it goes away? That's not pursuing peace. Interestingly enough, the Corinthian church was what we could call an ingrown church. And one of the marks of an ingrown church is arguing and conflict and inner turmoil. And that was the Corinthian church. See, they, they were so busy looking at themselves that all they could do was argue with themselves. They weren't looking upward and they weren't looking outward. They were only looking inward and that created problems. They were stuck navel-gazing and that led to fighting with one another because if you're focused on yourself, then someone sure enough is going to come along who also is focused on themselves and what happens when two selfish people collide? Destruction, conflict, but opportunity. If our focus is consumed with God upward and others outward, guess what we won't have time for? Our inward petty struggles. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church who are having those inward petty struggles, and he says... Be united with one another. And today, Grace Chapel, the main point here is the same for us. Grace Chapel, be united with one another. Paul calls the Corinthian church and he calls us to be united with one another. 
you were here last week, remember that last week we talked about Paul's command for us to live as saints together. How do we do that? One of the ways is that we be to live as saints together is to live as united people of God. So what does that look like? There should be no division. We should be of one mind. There must be unity. What Paul is saying is that we as the church of God, particularly in our local expression here in Havertown, we are to be united with one another. So this morning, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. Follow along as I read God's holy word. This is the word of God to his church in Corinth and to his church today to us. Hear the words of the Lord. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers... What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words or eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's Word for us this morning. And this morning, I want us to see, as we seek to understand what it means to live as united with one another, I want us to see three things. The first thing is the nature of conflict. What is the root problem of conflict? What causes conflict? The second thing, why is conflict such a problem? What is the danger of conflict? I believe that particularly unresolved conflict is destructive to the gospel in our Christian witness. The last thing is how do we resolve conflict? How do we seek to resolve all the conflict? And here's where the hope comes in. The good news of the gospel works towards resolving conflict in our lives. So, the nature of conflict, the danger of conflict, and how in the world do we resolve conflict? Resolution of conflict. The goal, the gospel imperative, if you will, is that we must, as a local church, each and every one of you, be united. Be united. So let's begin by looking at the nature of conflict The specific nature of the Corinthian conflict as in verses 11 to 13 is this. Don't worry, we'll get back to verse 10. But look at verses 11 to 13. 
Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Some say I follow Paul. Others say I follow Paulus. Now I'm on Cephas' side. Oh, I follow Christ. He's the spiritual one. Much like today, the church is split over personalities. We live in what I would call a personality-driven culture. Particularly, this has infected the church. If you look at the pastors even, social media or Twitter or Facebook, it's all about him and what he is and who he is. It's all about me, me, me. That's what social media is. It's all about us saying about ourselves. It's all about us. And pastors really are no different. When I was in seminary, there were various cliques depending on who you followed or what church you came from. So I was at Southern Seminary, and Al Mohler was the president. So I, I, I went ahead and invented kind of a name for these people because they really were followers. So the people who loved Al Mohler were the Molarites. But then there were people who from, if you're familiar with Mark Dever in, in Washington, D.C., there was a big group from his church. They were the Deverites. And then how many know of John Piper? Guess who he is? Guess who they are, right? They were the biggest group at the seminary. They were the Piperites. And they literally were followers. And, and there's something good about following people because the, the scripture does say, follow me as I follow Christ. But they were so focused on these personalities that if you mentioned, well, I don't fully agree with something that they said, you would get jumped on by 20 people who were following these, these guys. See, the problem with picking and choosing one leader over another is that Paul says it portrays a broken church, a divided church. And Christ's church is not divided. So Paul challenges their thinking, is Christ divided, he says? It seems that way because some of you are following me. It seems that way because some of you are following Cephas. It seems that way because some of you are following Apollos. And he says, this should not be. Anytime you have multiple leaders in a church, there's, this danger exists. Or even multiple personalities in a church. Strong personalities. May we never, Grace Chapel, say, I follow Pastor Will. Or I follow Pastor Matt. Or I follow X, Y, and Z. What should we be saying, church? We follow who? Christ. We follow Christ. His church is not divided. Lord, keep us from personalities. But let's step back for a minute. This particular problem in Corinth is about a division over personalities. But I want to step back and see the broader perspective of conflict. What is the root of all conflict? I think it is this. Pride and selfishness. All conflict stems from pride and selfishness. Conflict happens when we put our hopes, our desires over and above someone else's. That happens when we say, I want this. And what, what happens when we don't get what we want? trouble. And if someone keeps us from getting what we want, what happens? 
personal conflict. The root of conflict is pride and selfishness. Conflict springs out of the well of our prideful hearts. It comes because inwardly we are proud people. The nature, the root of all conflict is sinful pride, but thankfully, the good news is that in the Gospel there is an antidote to our pride. There is an antidote to our arrogance and our selfishness. But before we get to the antidote, I want us to see why this conflict, why pride, why selfishness, and why conflict is so dangerous. All conflict is an affront to the Gospel. All conflict is a front to the gospel. This is why conflict is so dangerous. Conflict, if left unresolved, strips the gospel of its power and beauty. If conflict remains unresolved between two believers in Christ, what that shows to everyone else, including the watching world, is that the gospel is not powerful enough to resolve it. When you allow your sin and your pride to stand in a way from reconciling with the brother or sister, what you are saying is that Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross is not powerful enough for me to overcome this. I must stay angry or he hurt me too bad in your cross. Your blood work is not enough. That's what we do when we don't reconcile. Unresolved conflict, it doesn't, the gospel is always powerful. The gospel, we cannot affect its power, but its appearance seems to be powerless when conflict is bigger than God's word, bigger than the cross. And I'm here to tell you there is no conflict that is greater than what Christ has done on the cross. There is no conflict. And that church is hopeful for us. But if Christ's church acts divided, it portrays a divided Christ. And that's why Paul is so worried. That's why Paul writes, we cannot allow our relationships to be broken because it shows the gospel as insignificant. It shows Christ himself as divided to the church. Ultimately, conflict between believers brings shame and dishonor to Christ and the church. Conflict spoils our testimony to other believers and it soils our witness to the watching world. But the good news is that the gospel is powerful enough. God himself is powerful enough. We who have been forgiven so much, and this is where the gospel comes in, Because you and I have been forgiven so much, we are now empowered to do what? Forgive those who have wounded us. That's not something you and I can do without first recognizing what Christ has done for us. See, part of the problem is we don't really think we're that bad, that our sin really wasn't that bad And therefore, the gospel isn't really that significant. But if we see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, if we see that wretched man that I am, then we see the beauty of the gospel and what God has done for us by forgiving us 
so much in Christ. And if we can look back and say, I am so wretched and look what God has done for me, I can turn to my brother and sister who's wounded me. And whether they respond or not, I can say I forgive you. See, what Paul did, if we look in verse 17, is he pointed the Corinthian church away from their inward, navel-gazing self. And he said, this is why I came. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul took the gospel and pointed the inwardly focused Corinthians. He said, look upward and see Christ. My mission, Paul says, was to preach the gospel. And I'm not an eloquent preacher, but I'm a humble messenger, Paul says. And my job is to lift up Jesus. It is all about what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. It's not about Pastor Will. It's not about Pastor Matt. It's not about the elders, the leaders. It's not about you. It's not about Grace Chapel. It is about what Christ has done. That is why Paul came and that is what he preached. This gospel first and foremost takes our broken relationship with God and restores it. Part of the problem why that remains somewhat insignificant and we sit there passively like, yeah, my relationship is restored, is that we don't realize the depth of what we, of the fact that we were at war at one time with God. The Bible uses the word enmity to describe our relationship to God before Christ. You know what that word means? At war. We were at war against God. And in a very real sense, he was against us. But when he loved the world, sent his son, he declared, I am for you because of what Christ has done. Now, God the Father sees us, instead of through the lens of war, he sees us through the blood-stained lenses of his son's death on our behalf. Christ came. He even himself declared to save sinners. Paul says in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We are so unmoved by that, aren't we? So unmoved. He lavished, poured out grace upon people who were at war with him. When is the last time you ever thought about doing that? And that is what God does. He pours out, lavishes upon us his grace upon his enemies. So if God can do that for us, what Paul says elsewhere is that you can do it towards others. Because the gospel restores our relationship with God, it lays the essential groundwork to restore our relationships with one another. 
at the cross and through the resurrection, our relationship with God is restored. And flowing out of that, our relationships with others can be restored. But they take work, don't they? They take work. Just like our relationship with God takes work. But the gospel is powerful enough. It is powerful enough to restore those relationships. See, when that conflict is resolved, when relationships are restored, when brokenness and reconciliation comes beauty and glory and honor, instead of making the gospel an affront, it turns the gospel into something beautiful. When we live in unity together, it says the gospel is powerful enough to take men and women and children who are very different, who normally would not even talk to each other, who have nothing in common, who don't look the same, act the same, or talk the same, but are united in Christ. And that is because of what Christ has done. And that church makes the gospel beautiful. When we are united, the gospel looks good to others. It looks beautiful to others. So if that's where we need to move, how do we get there? How do we resolve conflict? Because we all know, right, conflict will come. Conflict always comes. It it is unavoidable. It's not so much when, but how and when. Look at verse 10. Back to verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you do what? Agree. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What does he appeal to? His appeal is on the gospel, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, reconciliation. That broken relationship you have with that family member who 10 years, 20 years, you have not talked to. It is possible because of the power of the gospel for that relationship one day to be made right. There's hope because of what Christ has done. I'm at one of the favorite stories I have is, <clears throat> I don't know all the details, and unfortunately I'm losing my voice. At Westminster Seminary, where I'm at, a student, one of the original guys, our Cornelius Van Til, was a very bright man, but had a lot of debates. A lot of people argued with him, and he disagreed strongly with many people, and many people strongly disagreed. But one letter he wrote to one of them, he said this, he said, I strongly disagree but I long for the day where we are at Jesus' feet together. Even though he disagreed, he saw that there was hope because of what Christ had done. So church, there is hope. So conflict can be resolved. So how do we do it? Paul says, offers three ways. First, we are to agree with one another. And agreeing with one another assumes a few things, doesn't it? The first thing it assumes is that we're actually listening to one another. What's one of the first things that goes out the window when we have conflict? 
I know when, when Sarah and I are going at it, the first thing we start do, we do is turn off our ears. Right? We don't listen to one another. We don't give one another the benefit of the doubt. We can't agree if we're always assuming the worst about someone else. So Paul says, agree with one another. Common charity, common grace, common mercy towards one another. Secondly, there are to be no divisions among us. We can be a church with no divisions while at the same time not being a united church. Do you get that? We can be a church that is not divided, but is also not united. I'm always struck when I've done marriage counseling. I always get nervous when couples come to me and said, yeah, we don't fight. I'm like, really? You don't fight? You've never fought with your spouse? That always makes me nervous. You know why? I think one of the keys to marriage is knowing how to fight well. Is your relationship with your spouse so shallow that you never disagree? You can be a church without division, but not united. You can be a husband and wife without division, but not united. When you are united, when sinners come together, there will be conflict. But that is a good thing because each conflict, again, creates an opportunity. Just like marriage is worth fighting over, every conflict we have with one another in the church is worth fighting over. We'll talk more about that later. Third, Paul says, be united in the same mind and same judgment. The goal is unity. It's not uniformity. It's not that we all need to be thinkless, thinkless drones. We're not all to agree with one another every single specific thing. But yet, allowing the freedom, true unity allows the freedom for diversity. True unity gives freedom for those who are different to be loving towards one another, caring towards one another. John 17 is just a remarkable chapter. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays before he dies, and this is what he prays, verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through the word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we, Father, are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Grace Chapel, do you realize that Jesus 2,000 years ago prayed that we would be perfectly one? That there would be no divisions among us that we would be united together. That is the hope of Christ. That is the prayer of Christ. Perfectly one. 
If we are united, then we are just like Jesus in his relationship with his Father. And secondarily, just as, not, not almost as important is that if we are one, we are declaring that unity of God to the world. You want to know what one of our most effective evangelistic tools is? Stop quarreling. Be united. Love one another. This is what Jesus prays for us to do. How do you be an effective witness, church? Love one another. Give each other the freedom to disagree and still love. That is what Jesus prays for. So that his church, so that us would be a faithful witness. So that the world would know that he was sent from God. That is our response. We love one another. Our love for one another shows off God's love for one another. Our unity declares the gospel powerful. Our being united and loving one another shows that what Jesus did on the cross is magnificent and glorious and powerful and beautiful. So how do we move forward? How do we pursue reconciliation? If we've had conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, let me offer three brief concluding thoughts. First, relationships are a mess worth making. You have to believe that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Relationships are a mess worth making. If we're called to live as saints together, which we saw last week, then we must strive to live holy lives together. And guess what? Are we all holy, perfect, and holy yet? Not yet. Are we getting there? Hopefully. How do you think we get there? One of God's chief ways. We've all thrown out this proverb before, right? Iron sharpening iron. That's what God's people are supposed to do. Do you realize, if you actually think about it, iron sharpening iron involves a whole lot of what? Friction. Friction. If iron is a sharpened iron, there will be friction. But you know what is the oil that soothes and makes the friction less? It is the good news of Christ and his gospel and that he has forgiven us much so that we may forgive others who wound us. We need to love one another enough to see that even when we disagree and are hurt or hurt one another, those relationships are still worth fighting for. Our unity is the body of Christ and our testimony to Christ is at stake. Church, we need to fight for those relationships. The second thing we need to do is follow the biblical instructions for conflict resolution. There, Scripture speaks to it. Jesus speaks to it. Matthew 18 is very specific. Jesus himself says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That means, church, we need to be a church that pursues peacemaking if we are going to be a united church. We need to give one another the benefit of the doubt. We need to seek the glory of God. We need to see every conflict as an opportunity where God may be glorified and the gospel may be lifted up. 
This could be a whole sermon series on peacemaking. Let me commend to you, Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. If you've not read it yet, it's one of those, I, I, I hate when pastors say, you should read that book. It's one of those that you should read that book. There are biblical instructions for pursuing peace. Third, and I think most importantly, we need to look upwardly and we need to look outwardly. The only way to do this is through the path of humility. The only way we look up, the only way we look out is through humility. And humility, church, is the way of Christ. So if we today call ourselves followers of Christ, then the way of Christ must be our way. Humility must be our way. Philippians 2 should be our hallmark. Church, Philippians 2 should be our signage, our shirt, whatever we wear. If we broadcast Christ, then we need to broadcast Philippians 2. Paul writes, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others. That means look past yourself. And he says, how do we look past ourselves? Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Grace Chapel, how are we to have the same mind among ourselves? We follow humbly in the path of Christ. We don't put our own interests first. We put others first. We put Christ first. We need to look upward and then we look outward. Until we as a church are humble, until we as a people are humble, we will not be able to be united in one heart, one mind, and one mission. We will remain forever divided unless we humble ourselves before the Lord. And here's the reality, which all of you who've walked with Christ for any time know. You don't just walk up one day and say, Lord, I've humbled myself and be done. What does Christ call us to do every single day? Daily take up our cross. And that cross is a call to die. And very practically, a die to self. 
to take up our cross, to choose to walk in the manner worthy of Christ, be, who himself humbled himself to the point of death. Brothers and sisters, this is the path we follow if we claim to be disciples of Christ. So Grace Chapel, complete my joy by being united, having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you and me agree that there be no divisions among us, that we be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Let us pray. Our Father, may we put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. May we bear with one another. If one has a complaint against a brother or sister, may we forgive each other as you, Lord, have forgiven us. Above all these, may we put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. To this we are called in one body. Create in us spirit, thankful, humble, Godward, and outward-looking hearts. In the name of our humble Savior, Christ, we pray. Amen.